Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so we're going to pick back up on our study of Hamilton's second report on public credit, wherein he's calling for a National Bank of the United States, so a centralized finance house. And recall, in our first episode on this topic, we left off with Hamilton summing up what he believed to be the biggest advantages of having a national bank. So today, what we're going to do is pick up where he pivots, and he's going to say, okay, I've spent all this time outlining what I think are the best benefits, but now let's look at some of the objections to a national banking system and again, he's talking about those pesky Jeffersonians, those pesky agrarians who had a suspicion of big government and big finance, especially when fused together. So in picking up here, he says it would be to intrude too much on the patience of the house to prolong the details of the advantages of banks, especially as all those which might still be particularized are readily to be inferred as consequences from those which have been enumerated. Their disadvantages, real or supposed, are now to be reviewed. The most serious of the charges which have been brought against them are that they serve to increase usury, that they tend to prevent other kinds of lending, that they furnish temptations to overtraden, that they afford aid to ignorant adventurers who disturb the natural and beneficial course of trade, that they give to bankrupt and fraudulent traders a fictitious credit which enables them to maintain false appearances and to extend their impositions, and lastly, that they have a tendency to banish gold and silver from the country. So those are the six points of contention that Hamilton is going to attempt to overcome throughout the remainder of this report on public credit. And I think it's very interesting there. Point number six or outline number six that he gave or the argument that he gave there that they have a tendency to banish gold and silver from the country. That is Gresham's law. Gresham's law, in a nutshell, says that bad money will have a tendency to drive out the good money because people will hoard up the good money and circulate the bad money, and that'll drive it to the extent that the good money actually ends up leaving circulation altogether. So it can cause really bad inflationary problems, so on and so forth, which I think has been proven time and time again. There's no doubt about that. 
So those, again, are the six points that he's going to try to refute. And as we go through each one of these, I'm going to try to give you a mixture of Jeffersonian counter responses and also even some things from the Bible, especially when we start talking about that first point where he talks about usury. So let's go ahead and get into it a little bit more here. He's going to go on and say, There is great reason to believe that on a close and candid survey, it will be discovered that these charges are either destitute of foundation... So, look, these people are just crazy. They're loons. They're liars. And is that not what we saw all throughout the pandemic with anybody who questioned the narrative being called a kook or a conspiracy theorist? Look, these people have no idea what they're talking about. Their claims are not based on anything factual. That's what Hamilton's saying here, but about the National Bank. Or that as far as the evils they suggest have been found to exist, they have proceeded from other or partial or temporary causes are not inherent in the nature and permanent tendency of such institutions or are more than counterbalanced by opposite advantages, this survey shall be had in the order in which the charges have been stated. The first of them is that banks serve to increase usury. It is a truth which ought not be denied that the method of conducting business, which is essential to bank operations, has among us, in particular instances, given occasion to usurious transactions." The punctuality in payments which they necessarily exact has sometimes obliged those who have adventured beyond both their capital and their credit to procure money at any price and consequently to resort to usurers for aid. But experience and practice gradually bring a cure to this evil. A general habit of punctuality among traders is the natural consequence of the necessity of observing it with the bank, a circumstance which itself more than compensates for any occasional ill which may have sprung from that necessity, in the particular, under consideration. As far, therefore, as traders depend on each other for pecuniary supplies or monetary supplies, they can calculate their expectations with greater certainty and are in proportionably less danger of disappointments which might compel them to have recourse to so pernicious an expedient as that of barring at usury. The mischiefs of which, after a few examples, naturally inspire great care in all but men of desperate circumstances to avoid the possibility of being subjected to them. One, and not the least of the evils incident to the use of that expedient, if the fact be known or even strongly suspected, is loss of credit with the bank itself. The directors of a bank, too, though in order to extend its business and its popularity in the infancy of an institution, they may be tempted to go further in accommodations than the strict rules of prudence will warrant, grow more circumspect, of course, as its affairs become better established and as the evils of too great facility are experimentally demonstrated. So there he's basically saying, look, when the bank's new, yes, the directors of the bank may be a little bit more accommodating and extending credit, but over time that's going to fix itself. They become more attentive to the situation and conduct of those with whom they deal. They observe more narrowly their operations and pursuits. They economize the credit. They give to those of suspicious solidity they refuse it to those whose career is more manifestly hazardous. In a word, in the course of practice, from the very nature of things, the interest will make it the policy of a bank to succor the wary and industrious, to discredit the rash and unthrifty, to discountenance both usurious lenders and usurious borrowers. There is a leading view in which the tendency of banks will be seen to be to abridge rather than promote usury. This relates to their property of increasing the quantity and quickening the circulation of money. And right there, what is Hamilton saying? He's saying, well, look, they will actually tend, they being banks, will actually tend over the course of time 
to lower the rate of interest because they can circulate money and make it less valuable. That That's all that that means. He is calling for a high level of inflation. He's saying, look, if we can just use the banks to print up all this money, get paper money in circulation, then we can drive down the cost of borrowing and we can expand on the credit. That is exactly what we've seen since the post-2008 world, at least. I mean, honestly, a long time before that, too. But starting after the 2008 crisis, when you had the first rounds of quantitative easing, it has been a disaster. The Federal Reserve has printed trillions upon trillions of dollars. They pumped them into the stock market. They pumped them into corporations. They pumped them into the housing market. And they left the average person woefully behind and woefully unequipped to deal with this new economy that they have created. We have an economy that is completely based on artificial money, artificially low rates, and now that rates are even attempting to escalate, you're seeing the effects. Just over the past 30 days, according to a quick Google search, the Dow is down by 6.36% in a month. Let that sink in. The Dow is down by over 6% in a 30-day stretch. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's going to implode. I think that actually should have happened a long time ago if we were not playing a rigged game. But this does show you just how addicted to artificially low rates and funny money that the major corporations and major institutional investors are. This is all part and parcel part of Hamilton's plan. He said, look, we want these banks to be able to inflate. We'll leave them alone. We're not going to give the government that power, but we'll give the national bank the power to inflate. And then we'll give its subsidiaries the power to inflate by making loans on money they don't have. And then that'll be good because that'll drive down the rate of interest i.e. that will keep it artificially low. So if we look at it from this point, now there's you can look at this from a biblical standpoint or you can look at it from a, I guess, a more secular standpoint. So from the libertarian point of view, money is nothing more than an asset, right? It's just like any other asset. You can buy it, you can trade it, and its value therefore fluctuates. It does not have a stable value, especially when you start getting into paper currencies. Now, from the Bible standpoint, it is interesting because if we look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and I'm going to be reading out of the KJV version here, it says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And just to give you a definition of mammon, in the Oxford Dictionary, it's defined thus. It says, Wealth regarded as an evil influence or false object of worship and devotion. So when we think about it in that context, and we realize that Hamilton is calling for a specious centralized system that will inflate the currency and therefore amplify the wealth of the elite class multifold, then we can start to understand why the Jeffersonians had such a strong objection to this. And again, we already talked about this with the Revolutionary War bonds. You're taking from the poorest members of society when you inflate the currency. That is a tax. You are taxing the poorest elements of society the hardest when you use that sort of tax. But this is why the Jeffersonians objected to this, because they said, no, this is all the trappings of England. This is everything that we fought against. This is everything that we thought we had finally overcome when we won the revolution. And it's not right that we should place these burdens on the poorest elements of society while we turn right around and print all these riches up for the already moneyed interest, as the Jeffersonians would call them, mainly John Taylor of Caroline. But this is what Hamilton's calling for. This is exactly what Hamilton's calling for. A system, part and parcel, from top to bottom, that will be intertwined with the government and will inflate the currency and will benefit the rich at the expense of the poor, because he thinks the poor are nothing more than a rabble to be controlled. 
and let the people who know best and the people who already have their millions be the ones calling the shots. And that's what we have today, a huge corporate oligarchy, in my opinion. But let's go ahead and keep reading here. So we're going to skip forward a little bit and look at Hamilton's response to another argument, which is that investment in the bank would actually serve to act as a crowding out of investments in other types of industry or business projects. So he says here, but bank lending, it is pretended, is an impediment to other kinds of lending, which by confining the resource of borrowing to a particular class leaves the rest of the community more destitute and therefore more exposed to the extortions of usurers. As the profits of bank stock exceed the legal rate of interest, the possessors of money, it is argued, prefer investing it in that article to lending it at this rate, to which there are the additional motives of a more prompt command of the capital and of more frequent and exact returns without trouble or perplexity in the collection. This constitutes the second charge which has been enumerated. And this is a pretty strong argument because at this point, if you have a money class who can clearly say, well, look, the government has the right of taxation. It has the right to prop up this bank. It can do this. It can do that. Then, yeah, they probably will be inclined to go with the safer but more guaranteed investment there at the risk of crowding out other investments like mortgages on personal property, this, that, and the other. So let's look and see what Hamilton had to say in response to this. He says, the fact on which this charge rests is not to be admitted without several qualifications, particularly in reference to the state of things in this country. First, the great bulk of the stock of a bank will consist of the funds of men in trade among ourselves and moneyed foreigners, the former of whom could not spare their capitals out of their reach to be invested in loans for long periods on mortgages or personal security. So basically he's saying, look, at least as far as foreigners are concerned, they weren't going to invest in real estate anyway, or they were not going to invest in mortgages anyway because they're not going to lock up their capital that far out of reach for that long. And the latter of whom would not be willing to be subjected to the casualties, delays, and embarrassments of such a disposition of their money in a distant country. Secondly, there will always be a considerable proportion of those who are properly the money lenders of a country, who from that spirit of caution, which usually characterizes this description of men, will incline rather to vest their funds and mortgages on real estate than in the stock of a bank which they are apt to consider as a more precarious security. And so here he's actually saying, no, look, you don't have to worry at least domestically about this crowding out mortgage investments because there are going to be some people who prefer to speculate in land or to invest in land than to invest in a bank because they think that land's more practical. Okay, fine, fair enough. But what happens when a bank entrenches itself, especially a national bank, and then those people are, are kind of inclined to give up their misgivings about investing in a bank and saying, well, look, I don't necessarily need to invest in this land. I'll just invest in the bank and then let the bank buy the land. And we've already talked about that, too, in our great corporate reset episode, where we have a situation now where corporations are trying to buy up property, residential property, single home property or single family housing. Excuse me. So these are things that have been going on for a long time. For a long, long time, we did not get to where we are overnight. I want the, that to be one of the main takeaways from this episode. And then Hamilton goes on to say, These considerations serve in a material degree to narrow the foundation of the objection as to the point of fact. But there is a more satisfactory answer to it. The effect supposed as far as it has existence is temporary. The reverse of it takes place in the general and permanent operation of the thing. So here he's basically going to say, 
Look, yes, initially you may have a rush of people clamoring to invest in the bank, and that may actually draw resources away from other types of investments. However, that's going to be a self-regulating issue over the course of time. That That's Hamilton's fallback on a lot of these things is that, yes, a lot of it may happen exactly as you're afraid it will initially, but if we just give it time, if we just let it entrench itself, then it's going to work itself out. It's, it's going to smooth over the operation. And again, Hamilton was a persuasive speaker, unfortunately for us in the modern times, but I think he's been proven wrong because so much now in terms of economics and finance is just so consolidated on Wall Street. Now, if you want to retire, think, let's just think this through. If you want to retire, you will in some way interact with the stock market. If you have, a, or if you're a traditional employee with a, a company, more likely than not, your only investment option will be a 401k through them. And where do you invest that money? If you choose to invest it and not just sit there and hold it as cash, where do you invest it? In mutual funds. Oh, okay. Wall Street. Uh, if you are a state employee and you still have a defined benefit pension plan, well, your pension is still investing those funds in Wall Street. They're still investing those funds on the stock market exchanges. If you are a, an individual and you're self-employed and you set up a self-directed IRA, what's one of the only things that you can invest in? Equities. So you're still going through Wall Street. Now, there are thankfully some IRAs starting to come out now where you can actually hold physical gold. And I think maybe now even some cryptos, although I'm not a big fan of crypto. So that's good. That's at least a step in the right direction. But just think about that. The vast majority of people now who have otherwise no interest in ever getting involved with the casino that is the stock market are kind of force funneled into it if you want to keep up with inflation if you want to outstrip inflation that is what you're forced to do put your money in with these big companies and let them control it for you for however many years until you get ready to withdraw it and use it to live on for the remainder of your days it's a very nasty system and then the next thing that Hamilton brings up is kind of interesting because this is sort of in line with Gresham's Law, not really so much. But he talks about how a bank, if it has foreign investors, a national bank, if it has foreign investors, there was some concern from the Jeffersonians and I think even from some of the nationalists or the federalists that there would be a situation basically to where gold was drained out of the country because those foreigners would be drawing dividends in gold or in specie from the bank. But Hamilton says that's not really too much of an issue to worry about. So he says here, it ought not to escape without a remark that as far as the citizens of other countries become adventurers in the bank or investors in the bank, there is a positive increase of the gold and silver of this country. It is true that from this, a half yearly rent is drawn back accruing from the dividends upon the stock. But as this rent arises from the employment of the capital by our own citizens, it is probable that it is more than replaced by the profits of that employment. It is also likely that a part of it is, in the course of trade, converted into the products of our country. So there he's talking about the benefit to manufacturers. And it may even prove an incentive in some cases to immigration to a country in which the character of citizen is as easy to be acquired as it is esteemable and important. This view of the subject furnishes an answer to an objection which has been deduced from the circumstance here taken notice of, namely the income resulting to foreigners from the part of the stock, owned by them, which has been represented as tending to drain the country of its specie. In this objection, the original investment of the capital and the constant use of it afterwards seem both to have been overlooked. Now, I'm going to counter that with this. So earlier in this report, Hamilton's kind of being self-contradictory here, at least in my opinion, unless I'm, I'm misinterpreting this. 
But earlier in this report, recall that Hamilton basically said, we don't really need that much gold. He, he openly said that the bank could inflate the currency maybe by as much as three to one, and that you didn't really need that much gold as long as you could force people to circulate currency or paper money, then you didn't really have to worry about actually having the gold on hand if the depositors came in to demand it, because that, that likely would not happen. Now Hamilton's wanting to have his cake and eat it too, because here he's saying, look, with these foreigners, yeah, they're going to get their dividends twice a year. However, it's not going to amount to enough to actually drain specie out of the country. And and I would beg to differ, because if you only have a finite amount of gold there, which that's one of the benefits of gold, it is a finite resource. So if you only have a given quantity of gold on hand, and let's say you start getting a lot of French and English investors into the bank. Well, yes, as those dividend payments grow over time, definitely that could be a situation where gold starts to be siphoned out of the country, especially once we see the rise of institutional investors. Now, I don't think that would have been an issue back in Hamilton's day. Uh, I, I may be wrong on that. I'm honestly not well-versed enough to know. But I don't think that would have been so much of a concern back then. But as the later 19th century and early 20th centuries came along, then yes, as we saw the rise of institutional investors and the rise of organized capital, that would have been a huge concern of having a national bank where foreigners could invest. They, they could use that to legally drain a country of a lot of its gold. Maybe not all of it, but they could drain a ton of gold and specie out of the host country, so to speak. They would act basically as parasites. And even though they gave you a little bit of gold up front, as they start getting those dividends, they're getting it back plus some, especially if they leave their capital there for a long time or their investment there for a long time. So that that's an interesting point of view that Hamilton brought up there. Again, I think he's being kind of disingenuous and self-contradictory, but I, I'll be free in my bias. I do not like Hamilton, so I'm not being very charitable in my interpretation of this. But let's go ahead and get back to the report here. And we only have a couple of more things that we'll cover and then we'll go ahead and wrap up for today. So Hamilton next addresses the objection that basically banks serve to enable speculation or serve to enable, they called it overtrading. And Ham in Hamilton's point of view, he says, well, look, even if this be the case, we can only compare this little bit of bad to the general course of good that the bank will do. And let's, let's just kind of stop and think about that. So Let's look at the, again, I'm, I'm just going to use the stock market. Look at how inflated the stock market became after 2020, right? So it was already, in my opinion, at least, it was already overinflated before that. But in 2020, when they first announced lockdowns and everything else, uh, roughly around February, March of that year, the stock market tanked. And then we had a V-shaped recovery. Yeah, I mean, it, it just went straight back vertical there for a little while. Now, I was fortunate. That's actually when I decided to start getting into the stock market again when it crashed. And I've been holding my investment since then. However, a lot of this stuff would not be possible if banks were not artificially suppressing the interest rates. People would not be able to borrow money to go invest it. Corporations would not be able to borrow money to leverage and expand you wouldn't have these institutional investors being able to leverage their holdings either. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that banks, yes, they do enable this. And from an Austrian economics point of view, what happens is when you have the government or the Federal Reserve or in Hamilton's day, the National banks artificially suppress interest rates. Again, money in that school of thought is nothing more than another type of asset that can fluctuate in value. But what happens is you have this artificially low rate of interest, so you're art artificially deflating the value of money. And then what happens is you have a misallocation of capital. Now, depending on how long rates are artificially suppressed, 
that determines kind of how bad is the misallocation of capital or how serious will the bus be. And so now think about it. We've had a situation for the last 14 years, 14 years, at least since 2008, where we've had rates that are almost down to zero. The highest it got before 2020 was two and a half percent. The historical average for context is 7% when we start talking about the long-term government borrowing rates. So we never even got close to normal and the crash had already started happening before COVID. So a lot of people don't remember that either. If you go back and look at the major stock indexes, there was already a crash occurring probably about the last half of 2019. It wasn't that bad, but there was a noticeable downtrend in the stock market in the latter half of 2019. Fast forward to 2020 when COVID first really became a thing. Then that's when you get the major crash. But as I mentioned before, then you get the V-shaped recovery when the government started announcing all these bailouts and all the trillions of dollars that it would print to you know fight the, the pandemic. And again, Hamilton would kind of give an offhanded response to this. He says, if the abuses of a beneficial thing are to determine its condemnation, there is scarcely a source of public prosperity which will not speedily be closed. In every case, the evil is to be compared with the good. And in the present case, such a comparison will issue in this, that the new and increased energies derived to commercial enterprise from the aid of banks are a source of general profit and advantage, which greatly outweigh the partial ills of the overtrading of a few individuals at particular times or of numbers in particular conjunctures. And Hamilton is not really acknowledging the insidious nature of this because if you have, let's say an individual, let's say you have a person who worked for 40 years, they're trying to get ready to retire. If all of a sudden the stock market goes bust and their holdings decline in value, let's say by 60%, all of a sudden their, their outlook in retirement looks vastly different. Actually, I was reading an article the other day that unretiring is now a trend versus being able to retire earlier. Now the trend is going in the opposite direction and you have retirees re-entering the workforce because they're afraid they're going to run out of money. And that that is terrible. That is absolutely terrible because a lot of people never should have been involved with the stock market to begin with. That That's just the reality of the situation. If you had alternate paths where you could park your money elsewhere, if you could build up maybe a yeoman style farm, or if you could invest in a business or do this or do that, there are other ways that you can still try to get out from under the market system or under the stock system, I should say, but it's getting increasingly difficult year by year by year, especially if you want to try to become a farmer. It takes a lot of money now to become a farmer from the land to the machinery to the animals themselves and the seeds themselves. It is becoming extremely difficult to break into farming if you were not born into it. So with more and more people kind of force funneled into the stock market then every little thing gets amplified and every little market downturn becomes a huge problem because you're basically throwing everybody into a state of permanent crisis all the time. If the stock market's not continuously going up, people are not happy and they're going to push for governmental measures, rightly or wrongly, that has been the tendency. And it, I, again, I think Hamilton is just being very short-sighted when he says all of this, but he was smart enough that I think he was just kind of covering up that fact. And finally, we're going to jump to what Hamilton considered the heaviest charge against the National Bank. And he says, but the last and heaviest charge is still to be examined. This is that banks tend to banish the gold and silver of the country. Again, Gresham's Law at work. The force of this objection rests upon there being an engine of paper credit, which by furnishing a substitute for the metals is supposed to promote their exportation. It is an objection which, if it has any foundation, lies not against banks, peculiarly, but against every species of paper credit. 
Yes, I would absolutely agree there, Alexander. Uh, I would fully agree that any anytime you get a paper species or excuse me, a paper currency that is forced on the populace through legal tender laws, it's terrible. It doesn't matter who issues it, the government or a national bank chartered by the government. Whoever issues it, it becomes a problem if they're forcing it through legal tender and you're not holding the banks accountable with their hard reserves. And then he says the most common answer given to it is that the thing supposed is of little or no consequence, that it is immaterial what serves the purpose of money, whether paper or gold and silver, that the effect of both upon industry is the same, and that the intrinsic wealth of a nation is to be measured not by the abundance of the precious metals contained in it, but by the quantity of the productions of its labor and industry. And so Hamilton's saying, look, what what denotes money doesn't matter. All that matters is what is our productive capacity? How many trinkets can we make? How many things can we manufacture? That is inherently untrue, and that is one of the biggest reasons that governments throughout history have always sought to break the link between a hard currency and trying to go to a fiat currency. That reason being is because you can easily manipulate whatever a state-sanctioned currency is, you can easily manipulate that, or they can easily manipulate that. Versus with gold, if private individuals are holding it and the government can only get its hands on so much, it can only engage in so much inflation, right? There's a there's a natural or there's a, a real limit there because the government's not fully in control of the money. But when you move to a situation where you have the government, in this case, working with a corporation to control the money supply, or in our modern times, the government working with the Fed to control the money supply, then, hey, the government discovers it in effect has a backdoor to the printing press and it can print itself however much money it desires. It can enrich the politicians. It can enrich the cronies. It can do this. It can do that. So Hamilton's being very disingenuous there because reading through this, he is knowledgeable enough about finance that he does in fact know that it does matter whether you have a paper currency or a hard currency that the government does not actually have direct control over. But let's see what else he has to say on this particular topic. He says, this answer is not destitute of solidity, though not entirely satisfactory. It is certain that the vivification of industry by a full circulation with the aid of a proper and well-regulated paper credit may more than compensate for the loss of a part of the gold and silver of a nation if the consequence of avoiding that loss should be a scanty or defective circulation. But the positive and permanent increase or decrease of the precious metals in a country can hardly ever be a matter of indifference. As the commodity taken in lieu of every other, it is a species of the most effective wealth, and as the money of the world, it is of great concern to the state that it possess a sufficiency of it to face any demands which the protection of its external interests may create. And think about what he's saying there. This, this is FDR, before FDR. He's basically saying, look, we definitely need to make sure that the state apparatus controls some level of gold or, or has some level of gold on deposit. But for the masses, nah, just give them paper credit. Let, let them circulate that, and then we'll keep our gold on hand in case our foreign creditors make demands of us that we must meet. And we can trace that right up to FDR when he confiscated the people's gold and then up through the Bretton Woods Agreement. That's essentially what was going on. The American people could not have gold. The U.S. government could, so it could pay interest on its foreign debt, this, that, and the other. And, I mean, it, it's terrible. It is absolutely terrible because, again, we can trace this all the way back to Hamilton where he's saying... It doesn't really matter if the people have it because we can just give them a paper currency and they'll they'll be happy. The little peons will be happy. But yeah, for the general government, we're, we're going to keep a gold repository on hand just in case. So he recognizes that it definitely matters what actually serves as money and what is money. 
And then to wrap today's episode up, we're going to read what Hamilton said about giving this power directly to the government. So he says, The emitting of paper money by the authority of government is wisely prohibited to the individual states by the national constitution. It's a federal constitution, but whatever. And the spirit of that prohibition ought not to be disregarded by the government of the United States. And there he's leaning on implied powers, in this case, the implied power to print currency, even though that was not expressly granted. And then he says, though paper emissions under a general authority might have some advantages not applicable and be free from some disadvantages which are applicable to the like emissions by the state separately, yet they are of a nature so liable to abuse, and it may even be affirmed so certain of being abused, that the wisdom of the government will be shown in never trusting itself with the use of so seducing and dangerous and expedient. So think about what he's saying there. He's openly acknowledging, look, the government should not be trusted with this directly, but at the same time, he's saying, well, a corporation federally chartered or chartered by the general government, yeah, we can trust them because they're still going to they're going to still be subjected to market forces. That was Hamilton's whole thing with this, that the national bank would still be sort of a pseudo private entity. It would still have to operate under market conditions. However, with them having the explicit monopoly to handle all of the general funds, then yes, they they have a huge advantage over any real private banks or even the state banks that we were seeing pop up around this time. But here Hamilton's saying, we can't trust the government with it, just trust the creature of the government. And to me, there's not really a whole lot of difference when you intertwine these things as much as Hamilton did. And then he says, the stamping of paper is an operation so much easier than the laying of taxes that a government in the practice of paper emissions would rarely fail in any such emergency to indulge itself too far and the employment of that resource to avoid as much as possible one less auspicious to present popularity. And think about that. That is exactly what we saw with the baby boomer generation. They ran up an insane national debt, and they're passing the credit card bill down to their kids, grandkids, and probably great-grandkids at the very least. And then think about what we saw the last two years. Again, in barely over two years, the government printed, or the Federal Reserve printed, more than $5 trillion. And Hamilton knew this. Hamilton knew this. When he advocated for his system, he knew this because he said it right here in the second report on public credit. But we're going to go ahead and wrap this up for today. Thank you all so much again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.